We back in the lab, we making some noise, so go turn your decibels up. Yeah. Black skin, white coat, oh no, who was nice as us? Made Jim really told us no limits, so we about to take this up. Went from mixing in the kitchen to the lab, and now nah, I nah, can make this up. Be side, be scientist, be side, be scientist. We shining a light on the people of color to show them how fly it is. Be side, be scientist, be side, be scientist. We back in the lab with white coats on our back, trying to show what time it is. Hey. And welcome back to the B-Scientist Podcast, a podcast by the Black Science Coalition Institute for B-Sci. When you hear this noise, that is our in-podcast citation. So please check it out on b-sci.org backslash b-scientist, where you can see all of our citations ever. I am geoarchaeologist Jordan Chapman, and as always, we have the dope chemist herself. Jana Carpenter. And today we have a special guest. We got... Dr. Gertrude Nantra. I hope I got the right. I'm so sorry if I did that. Yes. <laughs> you did. You did. Yes. Yes. It's Nantra. Thanks. You're doing great. <laughs> Appreciate it. So, Dr. Nantra, you, uh, I had my first question is I know I saw that you got your PhD at Temple. So, I'm just wondering how you got to old, good old Philadelphia because that's actually where I'm from. Oh, okay. So great question. So this this rewinds the clock way back to 2008. Um, and I was applying for, I was at the time I was an international student. I'm originally from Ghana in West Africa and I had come to the U.S. as an international student to attend college. Well, um, one of the things that international students face is having to continually be in school or leave the country, you know. So at the time I knew I wanted to go get my PhD and I was kind of running out of time on my visa. So I just started applying everywhere. <laughs> and the school that did give me a chance to get to start my PhD program was Temple University. So that's how I ended up there and um, loved loved Philly so much. That's why I met my husband. Um, that's why I had my firstborn, um, got my PhD. I had so many, so many good memories are tied to Philly. I, I live in California now but yep that's how i ended up in philly <laughs> is your husband from philly no he he but he had uh, lived there for almost a decade before i met him um mm. so he's he considers himself a philadelphian <laughs> hey be out there <laughs> uh-huh, uh-huh. so i'm also wondering um just so that's that but also like obviously you're a scientist um and that's obviously a career path that requires a lot of different things to go uh i don't want to say right but it requires a different movement, a lot of different moving pieces so how did you become a scientist mm-hmm. so my my program my undergrad i was a biology major and later i would get a nursing degree as well but then my phd was in microbiology and immunology and so um the way i became a scientist my whole life i've been you know, I've sort of been kind of in that space of, of being a biologist and being in a scientific space and being a STEM major. So I knew that somehow science is going to play a major role in my career. Um, and of course, as PhD programs go with the specific PhD program I went to, it was very research focused. Um, as many other PhD students or even master students on this podcast may know you have your first few, maybe two years of didactic courses, and then the rest of the time you are focused on research. Um, I happen, I, I really do believe in the power of having good mentors when you are um, 
a budding scientist and I ha- I had a good I had a good department. I was part of a really good department. I I had a really great advisor. She was a young advisor at the time um and she you know, as you know, as young advisors, young faculty, they need to publish, they need to like establish themselves in the community. Um, And so it was a great place for me to be because she was just getting started. I I saw the other side of things where people that had older PIs with some time who had already obtained tenure sometimes struggle to publish because those people had tenure and it was just like, eh, you know, you're kind of on your own, figure it out. And they were there to advise, but there was no real push to publish. But I'm so grateful that I was in a place where, um, the, the, and she still is really, um, keen on publishing every single year, publishing papers. And so that really guided my research, um, to put my work out there. So I'd say that that's how I, I, you know, became a scientist, but yeah, my major was biology. I was in nursing. I went, so it kind of like, it just flowed. I don't know if that answers your question. Uh, I thought that was a really great answer. And I was kind of curious to know when you kind of found your voice or or knew for sure um, how to continue in academia, because I, I think a lot of the times I, at least for me, I knew going into STEM that this is something that I really enjoyed, uh, but I didn't really quite like find myself or my voice or or feel confident even now in my PhD program. And so I just wanted to see if um, how that maybe affected you or didn't affect you in any way. Yeah, I I think that's a good, uh, that's a good question, Jenna. And I I think um, it, it takes time. And so maybe for somebody listening, that's like, I haven't found my voice yet. I, I don't know where I fit in, in, in this whole academic, um, ecosystem. I don't even know if I should continue in academia after my PhD or after my master's. I will say it takes some time to find your voice. Um, one thing that I wish somebody had told me when I was in grad school is to be open to a different experiences. So some people absolutely know that research is what they want to do and research is all they want to do. And, and that's great if you know that. And I remember when I was in grad school, there was a professor who had come to give a talk and we had lunch with him afterward. And I remember asking him, how did you decide to be the researcher that you are? And he said, because I when I assessed myself, I wasn't good at anything else. Research was the only thing I was good at. That's why I became a researcher. And so for him, he kind of self-introspected and found that research was the best that he could do. So that's what he would stick to. And so then this, this it becomes a real difficulty if you're like me and you're multi-passionate or you're multi-potentialite where you, you're good at a whole lot of things and you don't really know where it is that you should settle. So this is where I say that explore different things. And whilst you're in grad school, grad school is the perfect place as a scientist for you to begin to explore, not just your research. And I know we don't, we don't, you know, as graduate students, we don't always have all the time, but it's a good place to explore. For instance, I'm a right, I'm, I'm a medical writer right now. Um, and that's what I do as my full-time profession. Okay. Um, But how did I stumble on that as a career path? Well, I have always enjoyed writing and I began to blog somewhere in 2014, 2013, 2014. I enjoyed that so much that I began to sell my skills essentially and began to freelance, right? 
and I wasn't even writing in a scientific uh, in the scientific space. I was writing personal finance blogs, how to like how to save on the best credit cards, like things like that. And I was getting paid money, and and I really I was like I I really enjoy this. I really enjoy going to research things, coming back, distilling that information down, and educating somebody. That I enjoy that. I also realized that I really enjoyed talking to people and and presenting things to people. Right. I really enjoy that. So so you have to begin to self-introspect and see which aspects of what I'm doing do I enjoy? And as you know, in academia, we write so much. What of these do I enjoy? And so even with my, even I remember when I wrote my dissertation, my one of my, uh, the people on my committee was like, wow, you're such a great writer. So like you have to listen to what people are telling you. You have to see what you enjoy. And then at a point, it's important for you to decide because I realized very quickly, I enjoyed the, the the activity of doing research. I enjoyed my experiments, my mouse experiments, collecting the data, interpreting the data. But at some point towards the end of my PhD or maybe in the middle of it, I realized, but this is not what I want to do for the rest of my life. I don't want to sit down and have to write grants for research. I don't want to do that. But I would love to write in an educational, I would like to write educational material. I'd like to write marketing material. I'd like to do that. And so I began to hone my skills that way. So I think that the decision to whether or not to stay in academia, which is, you know, universities and colleges as a researcher or as a professor or whatever, or the decision to step out. And and and, and here's the thing I want to plug in here is that so many of us um, people who are scientists forget that there are places outside of the ivory tower where our skills and our knowledge is appreciated and helpful and useful. If you want to stay in academia, that's excellent and I, and I applaud you. But there are opportunities for us also outside of the academy. Um, so that's 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 what I, I'd have to say. And one thing I also wish I um I had done was even do a little bit of informational interviewing, um, finding people in professions that intrigued me and just chatting with them. That I wish that's something um I would have done. Honestly, I'm I'm really glad we're having this conversation because I I've noticed recently with talking with a few people that um I think people don't realize that research is the end all be all with these uh, degrees and. Um, I think it's it's good to speak on these things because it's definitely not something that my department talks about, like, oh, what do you do if you don't go into academia? What happens then? You know, it's kind of this closed door conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, so. mm-hmm. I agree, too. I mean, even in um, anthropology and geology, it's also it's, it's very much I mean, not so much geology, but it is there um, that if it, it's, it's always like one or two career paths uh it's like you know if you're not academia then it's like this one specific thing um in anthropology or specifically archaeology just like if it's not academia you're going to do like cultural resource management in geology it's kind of like if it's not academia you might do like um you might go work for like an oil and gas company or something like that um and even when you think about mm-hmm. the district like the phd process it's like you you i, I was thinking about this the other day that's usually like i don't know a program where it's not about if you get uh, chapters done or papers done, and that is your dissertation. It's never I don't I don't and I don't even know what that would look like mm-hmm. if it's not one of those things. So I I agree that we we mm-hmm. should definitely have this conversation where we start thinking about what it looks like outside of academia and things like that. But I also know 
You about to say something? Oh no, mm-hmm. no, no! I was agreeing. I was just, I was agreeing with you absolutely that it doesn't get talked about much, and I don't blame, I don't blame the faculty in these programs because they also don't mm-hmm. know, right? Because their whole life is in the academy, so they may not even know people that that work outside of the academies, you know. So this is one of the the reasons, and maybe this is a, a good place for me to cite my YouTube channel, The mm-hmm. Bold PhD. And this is where, you know, I'm beginning this year, especially in 2022, I've been talking to people who have taken their degrees, their PhDs, and and, and translated that into something else. And, uh, you know, I think that that's a good place to, that may be a good place for somebody to even start looking that what what else can I do, mm-hmm. you know, um, there are people that have that have turned their PhDs into biotech companies, or people that have turned their PhDs into educational technology companies, or they went to work for one and stuff like that. So, um, just wanted to chip that in. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, I actually wanted to get into that a little bit because um, this is a bit tangent too, but we'll come back to it. I know um, that uh, there is a YouTube channel called Curse Scott, which I've talked about so many times on this podcast, um, but. The dude who started that, um, I, I think he's in Europe somewhere, but I, I know he got his PhD and then started that channel. He's turned it into one of the most successful YouTube channels for science communication. Um, it's It regularly does, a video could easily get a million views. It's it's honestly kind of crazy. It's like Crash Course and then Curse of Scots, honestly. Um, and they very much um, are inspired by each other at times. So that gets back to this conversation, which is, how do you decide to take like your blog to writing skills to the YouTube sphere? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so um, I'm a creative person and I think you, both of you are too. Otherwise you wouldn't be doing mm-hmm. this podcast. Right? So if you find yeah. an aspect of yourself, mm-hmm. yeah. If, if, you know, if you find an aspect of yourself that enjoys creativity, I think you should explore that as a scientist because we don't get a lot, you know, this pandemic has highlighted the need for more scientists to talk about their work, right? Because there's so many people that need to understand, right? All of a sudden now people can explain PCR to Mm -hmm. me (laughs) and I'm like, okay, you go because so many scientists and medical and and people in, in, in the scientific and medical world explained what what PCR tests are or antigen tests or all these things. So now people are very well educated. And I think that we're moving out of that era where knowledge was just for a certain group of people, right? And now knowledge is democratized. And I think that's such a great thing. So when you realize that you are a creative, I don't think you should hide that. I think you should put it out there. And it could be in the form of art. It could be in the form of music. It could be a talk show like this one. It could be a YouTube channel. Um, you, you talk... I, Kes Kazar, I know I've heard about him because one of my colleagues is a big fan of of of, of that channel and bought oh, the yeah. book they recently <laughs> released, right? Yeah, so um, that's a that's great. And when I, I I went and checked it out, I'm like, oh, I think he mm-hmm. was an immunologist, and so his whole book and my my degree was in microbiology immunology. So I'm like, oh, we have something. Going. I have to find time to watch mm-hmm. his channel. I haven't done that, but it's it's great that he been able to turn something that was typically complex, right, into something that millions of people want mm-hmm. to watch. And I bet his it, it, it probably skyrocketed during the pandemic. I don't know how his trajectory has mm-hmm. gone. Uh, he's been a while for... A, Go ahead, Jordan. No, I was going to say, because I actually, I love this channel. So if you got time to talk about it, we could talk about it all day. But um, one of the things 
that is really nice. And I think you even talked about it, like the way they distill information because they've been a YouTube channel for a pretty long time. They were like, I don't want to say they were like one of the original science communication channels, but they they just been around for a while. Um, and the thing is that mm-hmm. they have nice, they have really nice graphics. It's a, a wide range of topics. So like they've um, not into like recently did they really get into like the um, pandemic stuff or like um, at least like, you know, talking about T cells and like different parts of the immune system, but it was necessary. But before then they would just talk about random things. Mm-hmm. Like what if we, what, what is the debate between like milk and is it milk healthy? Like, is meat healthy? They would do kind of like they would um, do YouTube channel like videos about stuff like that, which were really good. Mm. But I think it goes back to like being creative and still taking this like complex different. But they also get to like they've done plenty videos about how they try to distill information, which is really nice too. But that's just me going off on a tangent. Mm. I don't mean to cut you off. <laughs> exactly. I just really love that channel. Yeah. No. It's it's not a tangent. I think it's it's great. I because because you see what they have done is also create a career for themselves. That's another mm-hmm, thing is mm-hmm. that they've created this whole scientific communications career for themselves. And I think about other channels like the Amoeba Sisters. And when I used to be a professor uh, at, a, at a community college, I would refer my my students to watch the Amoeba Sisters all the time because the Amoeba Sisters take complex biological concepts and make it easy so that somebody that never took a biology class could at least come away with some bit of information. But they've created a whole career for themselves out of being science educators, science communicated, communicators. And so if you find that you also have, not everybody has that, right? Not everybody is as entertaining as Kes Kazat or Amoeba Sisters, right? But even if you think there's something you that you care about, that you want to talk about, right? And I cared about careers, you know, PhD careers so much because there was so much I didn't know when I went into the job market, so much frustration. And I was like, no, other people don't have to go through that. So there may be an aspect, not maybe even science, but there may be an aspect within what you're doing, right? Let's say writing. I know somebody that has built a whole YouTube channel around dissertation rights. I'm like, how do you even find the content for that? But they do, (laughs) you know, Uh, you know, they do. So you may find something that really like, really gets you, gets under your skin and you're like, I'm going to talk about this, you know, and that ends up helping so many more people than you realize. So, and you end up creating a totally different career path for yourself. So I think it's great that you brought it up, Jordan. <laughs> yeah, I guess going, going further into that, uh, would you mind discussing some of the, the content that you've created and the books that you have um, that you want to speak about uh, specifically to this creative? Yes. Thank you so much. Cool. Yes, thank you. Thank you. So um, I, like I said earlier, I'm the host of the Bold PhD channel. And on the Bold PhD channel, I talk about PhD careers and especially non-academic PhD careers because um, according to, uh, the, I think there's a statistic on either NIH, I have to find the source, but I will send it so that we can add that citation in here, um, that only 17% of graduating PhDs will land a, t- a tenured faculty position. Okay, 17%. That's, that's less than one out of five. Okay, so when you graduate with 10 people, maybe two of those people are going to become tenured faculty because that's all that's available currently. Yes, you could get a faculty position, but it's likely it's not going to be tenured. It's going to be, or it's going to be contract or it's going to be adjunct. Okay. And some, and that kind of instability in careers is not good enough for me. So 
one of the things that um, I began to do was really talk about one of the YouTube channel, one of the videos on that channel that has done, I've gotten quite a bit of commentary on is one I did on the reality of being an adjunct professor. And it's, it sounds very respectable. It sounds very, um, you know, like, oh, I'm a professor. But there are adjunct professors that are living below the poverty line. There's something wrong with that. There's something wrong with a PhD who has who is very highly trained, highly intelligent, living below the poverty line. I know, and, and I this conversation has come up sometimes where people say, but a PhD is not about making money. And I'm like, yes, I get it. We love knowledge, but we still have to pay bills. We still have to go to the hospital. We still have to take care of children. You can't say that getting a PhD is not about money. Yes, ultimately, I would not, if you're just going to get a PhD or get a master's degree just because of the money, I would dissuade you from doing that. But we should get paid well because we have specialized skills that contribute to the innovations of the world. Okay. So, um, out of that, so you can tell I'm quite passionate about that, but (laughs) out of that passion, I started creating this channel to educate people on, and even just this week, just this week, I had somebody that emailed me, sent me a, well, LinkedIn message and said, Hey, I don't think I want to be in academia anymore. They have their PhD what else is out there for me? They didn't even know what else is out there for them. And they've been through a PhD program for five or six years. That's completely sad to me, especially knowing that there is a statistic out there that says only 17% of us are going to be tenured faculty. So out of that frustration, I started the Bold PhD to talk about some of these things and to talk about personal branding and how to differentiate yourself so that you can begin to enter and how to even think differently so that you enter the non-academic career markets. Now, somebody had pointed out something the other day that I thought was so crucial, and I want to insert it here. The way you position yourself for a faculty career or for an academic career is completely different from how you position yourself for a non-academic career. It's not the same thing. You don't even use the same kind of resume. So in in academia, we use CVs, and it's very performance-based, right? We're very performance-based in academia. We want to see your publications. We want to see where you've talked. We want to see all these accomplishments, right? Your grants, it's very performance-based in academia. In the non-academic world, it's less performance-based. It's about your skills, right? So if you start putting out a C, and that was a mistake I made, if you start putting out a CV that has all your publications and all your talks and doesn't highlight any skills, it's just going to go into the waste bin. It's just gonna, you're just gonna push it aside. But if on your resume you whittle that down, and I say, hey, whittle it down to about one page, but highlight the skills that you bring from academia. You know, when you're a PhD, you project managed all throughout your PhD, right? You have problem solving skills, you have writing skills, you have communication skills because you have to, you have to come up with us, you have to collect data and come up with a story and tell that story. You have storytelling skills, right? So tell us about your skills. It's not about your performance in in, in industry or in the non-academic world. So even that was like a revelation to so many people that what's like the the, the documents are not that I'm like, nope, not the same. <laughs> You know, mm-hmm. so it's stuff like that. And and that's what I built uh, the bold PhD around is really showing people that there is, there are academic, there are careers outside of the academy that also pay well, pay very, very well. And mm-hmm. that 
becoming a tenured professor, if you don't become one, I hope you don't become completely crushed, but realize that there are opportunities for you out there. I think those are all really good points. I mean, um, just again, just to go back, it is crazy how if you get into a master's program or a PhD program, like how, you know, tailored it is to like pipeline people to look for those academic um, careers um, and tenure track positions. And I don't know how many times I've been um, at a job talk or talked to an advisor in um, different departments and they say, oh, well, you know, we know that we're not expecting people to get tenure track positions, but the the rate at which these faculty members at big universities try to make that better is like ridiculously slow because I have not seen a big effort for academic um, for professors to just go like, okay, well we'll try to make more well-rounded students. So I think you're um, really speaking to just how niche and like you said the ivory tower is just it's just it is just a bubble at times so i think that's i think those are really good Mm -hmm. points Mm -hmm. yeah Yeah. so go ahead jenna and i was just gonna go off of that and and say that i i recently tried to have a, a, a round table discussion right with my department uh because oftentimes these like conversations just don't happen uh, and aren't really encouraged, at least. Um, but mm-hmm. we had this roundtable discuss- discussion with faculty members, and, and um, when the when the topic came up, it was just kind of like, "You'll figure it out. You'll figure it out. It'll come to you." And it's like, "Well, that's not really good enough <laughs> for me." <laughs> you know, like, no. <laughs> I don't know what I what I'm supposed to do because <laughs> it doesn't really just right. come easily for <laughs> everyone. Um, but yeah, mm-hmm. that's all I wanted to add to that yeah but but you bring up such a great point because because most people i mean i'm not saying that people who don't go into masters and phds are not intelligent people um but most of the time if you're in a master's program or a phd program, you are an intelligent person right and so because of that sometimes people assume that you should be able to figure it out you're an intelligent person but I, but my argument against that is yeah, we're intelligent people, but we're, we're, we're really smart at what we do in the lab or we're really smart at what we do in our fields. And that doesn't always translate, for instance, into social skills. That doesn't always translate into understanding how your skills even fit outside of what you're doing currently. You know, so saying that, and that's my, that's my, another, my, my, my pet peeve is like, if you say we'll figure it out, yeah, well, eventually some of us do figure it out. But if nobody has ever told you something, it's very difficult to actually just come across it on your own. You know, it's really, really difficult to come across something on your own that no, you don't even have a clue exists. So <laughs> saying, to, saying you will figure it out on your own, that's ridiculous. <laughs> A hundred percent agree. I, I've been having some problems, um, in my program. And I just, the one thing I just keep going back to is that I can only ever be, uh, maybe I'll be a a master's student. I'm actually applying to PhD programs right now, but I can only do those things once. Like I will only ever be like a, a grad student, like one time in my life. However, if you are a faculty advisor or a mentor, then the expectation is that 
you've dealt with the system so many times that you you have the now skills to mentor and help me get to a point where that should not be a problem whereby i come to you with the question that i should be you should have at least a, a satisfying answer or a satisfying resource that helps me get to the answer it shouldn't be you have to figure it out for yourself especially if it's like there are things that are just like so trivial where it's like oh like how how do i do this in the graduate school you work at this institution you should probably know that like that's that i just to me that is a mind-boggling thing that i've dealt with with many people in um, academia that who just don't know they're even the system they're in and it's just it is crazy yeah and 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 you know in listening to you say that jordan if somebody comes to ask me a question now that's knowledge like i'm like oh they have a question mm-hmm. about this let me go find out so i can help them Right. Let me go find out because back when I didn't know that there were even careers outside of academia, I was just like, am I stuck in this forever? Because this is, I don't want to do this. And what did I do? I went, of course, there's Google now. So you could, you could go to Google and search for things and find, and find out. But I really do think that this is why, again, that what I, I cherish what I'm doing so much because it helps I've have I have faculty people people who are in, in faculty positions that follow and and have invited me to speak and stuff like that and 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 I'm really excited about that and I'm beginning to see this whole career uh, this whole career conversation change at some of the universities but there's also still a lot of the figure it out for yourselves kind of thing but mm-hmm. but if somebody this is this is where it's important if somebody asks me a question. Now that question is knowledge. And the way that that question is knowledge is now I have a basis with which to gain that knowledge. And sometimes the, the problem I find is that in, in academia, like because people who have tenure uh, faculty positions do not care about what's <sighs> outside of academia, they're like, eh, like why should I find out about that for you? You know, um, and, and that can be problematic, mm-hmm. um, definitely. But yeah, totally. If, 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 if you don't tell somebody about something, they're not going to know. It's, you know, we can't just put it on graduate students to always try to find everything themselves. It's, you know, we're paying so much money to be in academic institutions. There should be some help there, you know. Right. Especially if like, you know, I mean, we've kind of alluded to it already, but like the pay difference between like someone who has a tenure track position at a major university versus like a grad student at a major university is not anywhere in the same ballpark. So if you no if if that's the case, then like you have to understand that I'm trying to deal with being poor, <laughs> being a grad student, and all the other responsibilities that are just like inherent in life. Never mind like um say like visa um people who are like helping with visa, but like there are just so many other responsibilities that we are taking on as graduate students. And you have a tenure track position, and that's not a bad job. Like you almost can't even get fired in some cases. Like it's you mm-hmm. should be you should be more willing to help out with these students but it's, it it just does not translate into that and it is very very frustrating no, at times. not always yeah i think this is the solution that some some programs are building into their building into their universities or programs is having a career an office to, uh that uh is dedicated to career development but even mm-hmm. then like when i was in grad school i cannot remember a single event where we were called and 
like, okay, today we're going to have somebody from medical writing talk to us. Or today we're going to have somebody from the pharmaceutical industry talk to us. Like we never had that, Mm -hmm. you know, and I would like to see that change. Um, Even if not the tenured faculty doing it, having very, very active career development departments that make this a focus and make this available to, you you know, you should be able to, I mean, if the PhD students choose then not to attend because they just choose not to attend, you did your job, but it should still be offered and universities need to, I think universities really need to take, especially take that into consideration, especially for um, masters and graduate students, because yes, we're very smart, we're very intelligent, but this stuff, like you're trying to like create completely new knowledge in your field. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, from scratch, it's hard, it's difficult. And some of that help I wish would be given to graduate students. I really appreciate those answers. And um, I know we're coming up towards the end of our time with you, which makes me so sad because you have such a wealth of knowledge. And oh, no. right. um, <laughs> but I'm so glad that, you know, at the end, we'll, we'll definitely be able to plug your uh, social media and other outreach plugins that you have. Um, but before we get to that, um, yes. And you, usually Jordan says his part, but I, <laughs> I guess I'm co-opting it today. It's both of our show. You got it. Yeah. So I usually towards the end of our interviews, we like to ask um, what in what ways do you think you inspire other people to be scientists in your own way? Hmm. Yes, I think just by showing up, I inspire people to be scientists. And what do I mean? I think... Over the last few years, there's been an emphasis on the fact that representation matters, right? Um, And when a child, especially young people, when you see yourself, so I'll tell you a quick story to answer this question and then I'll I'll wrap it up. But I I remember when I was a a, a young child, again, I grew up in Ghana and West Africa. And I remember that one of the highlights of my childhood was seeing a lady. She was a female physician. And she, it was the medical school graduation. I still remember her name. Her name was Dr. Elsie Mensa. And she had finished her, 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 her medical school and she had won all the best student awards at the medical graduation. And it was news all over the country because for the first time, a female student had won all of these awards. Like sometimes the, 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 the female students would win some but not all of them. So she was just overall a great uh, student and had won all these awards after med- at, at her medical school graduation. And I remember w- saying that I want to be like her. I want to be Dr. Gertrude. You know, I was a Pong at the time. Now I'm non tra but I want to be Dr. Gertrude, right? So I remember seeing that and thinking that's possible for me. You know, so... When somebody, and and I've had people say this to me, um, oh, it's so nice to see another black face in STEM, in science, or in medical writing. I never met a black medical writer, right? It's so nice to see that. And it's really nice to see that you're talking about it. Like you are it and you're talking about it. Thank you for that because now this inspires me to explore this path. So I think that the way that I inspire, I don't know if I inspire people, but I think that the way that I inspire people is simply by showing up and being creative. And this is why we need more, um, you know, like 
black has kazats maybe um <laughs> uh, maybe jordan does that <laughs> this is why we need more of that because we're there we're there, right? But how are people going to know if they don't see us? There's so many. I have a, a friend, um, a, an acquaintance, not a friend, but an acquaintance, a good acquaintance, who is a professor. She uh, She's also from Ghana. She's a professor of organic chemistry uh, at a university in Ohio, which, you know, chemistry is always like the subject everybody's afraid of. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Definitely I was uh, of, of, of O-Chem, and you know, and she, she told me the attrition rate for so many minorities students in her classes that so many minority students come into her class and drop her classes um, because they're so scared that they will fail and some of them just drop out of the stem major altogether and most of the time it's minority students it's black students right not just black students but general minority but a lot of black students do this because and why is that why is that though because maybe they haven't seen enough people who are in stem fields and say and 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 who have been through it and who can say to them hey if i did it you can do it too i also struggled with ochem but here's how you can study it and be better and here's how you can pass the course so by showing up by being created, by sharing your gift with the world, you can inspire people. And hopefully, as I do the both PhD, I can inspire more people. That was a great answer. Um, yeah, I just by showing up, I mean, that honestly, I do feel like it's that simple. Um, just show up and be scientist and you can change the mm-hmm. world. I, honestly, I, that's what I truly believe. But mm-hmm. Jenna, I don't know if you have any follow-up questions, if um, you do. Oh, yeah. If you just want to plug all of your social media, Mm. that would be great because I'm sure people will want to follow up. Yeah. Well, this was really great. I want to thank you, Jordan. I want to thank you, Jenna, for uh, reaching out and um, having me on your podcast. It's such a privilege to have been here. So if anybody wants to find me, um, I'm at theboldphd.com. That's the website. Um, And you can also Google or or look for The Bold PhD on YouTube. Um, I'm there. I'm also quite active on LinkedIn. So Gertrude Nontra PhD RN, you'll find me there as well. I'm also on Instagram at the Bold PhD. Cool, cool. Well, it's been great talking to the both of you, and we'll catch you in like two weeks. And until then, just keep being scientists. Be Scientist is a podcast by the Black Science Coalition and Institute, or BSI, a 501c3 nonprofit. B-Scientist is hosted by both Jenna Carpenter, chemist, and B-Size Research and Development Officer, and Jordan Chapman, geoarchaeologist and B-Size President. Music is produced by Delarallo, and lyrics are by Ed Yana. Special thanks to Michael Mike Castor Marshall and the Plaza Abbey Studios. If you'd like to donate to B-Side, visit our official website, bside.org. That's b-side.org. Your donation supports B-Scientist and B-Size other projects. We couldn't do it without you. So... Please tune in next time and always be scientists.